0: Christianity is not merely truth to be captivated and convicted by. Unless our being captivated and convicted of the truth leads us to do something about our lives and about other people, the conviction is useless. Us simply looking at the love of God and being amazed by it is useless unless we are moved to Actually love others, which is our main idea tonight. Real love is perfected in us, made complete in us when we actually love others. Emphasis on the word actually. We're not just talking here. We're talking about real deal, actually loving others. I love the passage that our friend wrote. I read earlier. I wasn't looking back. First Corinthians 13. It's so fitting. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul is saying we can be a spiritual rock star, but if we don't actually love people, that's all useless. You can know every answer in small group in just a few moments. But you don't love, it's useless. I can stand up here and preach the best sermon I've ever preached in my life. But if I don't have love, it's pointless. These guys could lead musically awesome songs. But if they have not love, it's useless. Love's a big deal. And God intends it for us as his people. So 1 John 4 11 and 12, John writes, Beloved, if God so loved us that we saw last night, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not be merely amazed by your love, but that we we would be moved to action that we would be moved to actually love others, particularly those people that are very difficult for us to love. God, would you change us? We don't want to waste our time tonight, so would you transform our hearts? Would you change us from the inside out? Would you sanctify us, God? Pray that you would do a mighty work in our hearts. We desperately need you. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The first point that I want us to see tonight is that God's love for us compels our love for others. God's love for us compels our love for others. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Notice the logic here, beloved. So he's talking to Christians again. He's not talking to non-Christians. The command does not go to non-Christians because they don't have God, who is love, within them. The command is to Christians. If God so loved you, beloved Christian, then we ought to, we must love one another. So here again, we see a command of sorts to love others, but it's stronger than a command. It's assumed. It's a must here. And our love for others is compelled by the overwhelming love of God for us. He says, if God so loved us, how did God love us? We backtrack into verses nine and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, beloved, If God loved us like that, we also ought to love others. I don't want to re-preach last night's sermon, but it's worth briefly considering God's love for us because it is God's love for us that compels and motivates and fuels us to love others when we don't want to at all. So what was it about God that compelled him to love us? Nothing, nothing at all. The fact that God is love is the reason that God moved toward us in love. We were not concerned with God at all apart from his grace. Apart from the grace of Jesus, I can really only think of one word that describes you and me. And that is the word self. S-E-L-F. I hope I spelled that right. Self. I get confused. I didn't know. Everybody knows somebody in their life. That every interaction with that person is just me, 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 me. The conversation always get twisted to them and their needs and their wants and their frustrations and their wins and their failures and their life. And it just sucks the energy out of you, right? Anybody know anybody like that? Some of you might be like that, I don't know. I like to refer to these people as me monsters, okay? They're me monsters. Me, 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 me all about me, and no one wants to love a me monster. We don't. We get tired of me monsters. If you were talking to a me monster tonight on the pier, let's be honest, the only thing you're thinking is, how can I throw this person into the ocean to be eaten by sharks so that no one would know? <laughs> That's what you're thinking when you're talking to a me monster. That's what I'm thinking. All right, maybe I'm worse than you. Maybe you are. Yeah. Yeah amen. Okay, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. We are all me monsters. Whether we constantly talk about ourselves out loud to others or not, we all think about ourselves in our minds and in our hearts constantly. We do. Some of us are just better at hiding it than others. Just think about this. The fact that me monsters get on our nerves so much is because they're stealing all the attention from me. That's why they bother us. You're talking about you so much that I don't get to talk about me. So be quiet so I can talk about me. God hears and knows all the thoughts of our minds and hearts as if we were audibly saying it all. He's constantly hearing all of our thoughts about ourselves. And the love of God is that he doesn't take that bucket we were talking about last night with the entire ocean in it and dump it directly on you. And instead, he dumped your bucket on Jesus in your place. The theme of your life and the theme of my life is myself. God created us to love and enjoy Him, and we said, No thanks, God. I would rather love and enjoy and worship Me. I'm doing just fine as my own personal God. We are consumed with ourselves. We are self centered. We are constantly looking at ourselves and watching ourselves, always regarding ourselves. We assert ourselves and we insist that the things that we desire, we must have. We are self-conceited. We are always ready to defend ourselves and to condemn the same actions in others. We indulge ourselves. We indulge in what we want. And then we judge others for indulging in the very same thing that we allowed ourselves to indulge in. We please ourselves, always doing the things that make us happy. We are self-seeking, always out for ourselves we practice self-pity, always wondering why people would treat me like this. Life isn't fair for me. Woe is me. You just don't understand what it's like for me. But some of you are on the other side of that self-problem. You have self-confidence, and you think that the world would be a better place if everybody was just more like you. And at the same time, we're all self-sensitive. We're easily wounded, and we imagine that we're being attacked or judged in reality. We're really probably not and we always defend ourselves sometimes we even wait for, p- for people to be mean and harsh creating imaginary scenarios where everyone is out to get us we are always concerned and consumed with ourselves you're the selfie generation i'm not bashing selfies but i kind of am this is the constant battle raging in our hearts This is the constant conversations that we are always having with ourselves, and God hears it all as we are more concerned with ourselves getting glory than him. We are glory-stealing me monsters. That's who we are. And God will not give his glory to another, so God glorified himself in a remarkable way. He poured out his wrath on his only son, Jesus. Jesus set aside his glory and took up... The wrath that we deserve, while we were self-centered sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus calls you and I to die to ourselves, take up our cross, embracing the reality that it's not about me anymore, it's about Jesus, and that is the most freeing reality to embrace. And so what do we do as followers of Jesus? John tells us, we love others as he loved us. If he so loved us, we ought to love others in the same way. We demonstrate the same love to others that he demonstrated to us. John's logic here is that if God so loved you, how could you not love others with this same kind of intensity? The answer is if God's love has not moved you to love others, you have not been moved by God's love. We have not been truly changed by real love. But if we have been changed by real love, I want us to understand a few aspects about real love that will flow out of us as we love as Christ loved. First, real love has no boundaries. Real love has no boundaries. If you are in Christ, not one of us can say, I will love these people, but I will not love these people. That is not Christian language. Not one of us, if you profess... If you affirm, if you believe that God sent his son to take your place on the cross, you cannot say, I love these people, but not these people. You cannot draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not going over there. Real love does not have boundaries. God removed all those boundaries at the cross. Real love also looks like death. We have glamorized love, but love is not glamorous. Love looks like a bloody cross and a man murdered in your place. That's what love looks like. There's nothing pretty about love. It's inconvenient and it's messy and it feels a lot of times like a waste of time and it may even look absolutely foolish. But that's what we're called to. Real love though is not only looks like death real love is is fullness of joy it's joy it has no boundaries it looks like death but it is joy john in the first chapter of his book in verse four says i'm writing these things to you so that your joy may be full so john writes first john chapter 4 verse 11 we also ought to love one another for your joy For our fullness of joy. When I was your age, I wanted to be a Major League Baseball player, but I'm short, I'm slow, and I'm not strong, and so that didn't work out for me. Um, And I thought that was the pathway to fullness of joy. If I could just be the star of the show, and let's be honest, that's all of our desire, just to be the star of the show. You could be the LeBron James of your basketball team, And everybody worships you. Everybody wants you on the team. Everybody praises you. But the joy that you would experience in that does not compare to the joy that you would experience in dying to yourself and loving others. That's fullness of joy. (coughs) Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured the cross must be the same joy set before us as we love others for Jesus' sake. So God's love for us compels our love for others. God's love motivates our love for others, but our love for others brings his love to perfection. That's the second point. Verse 12 says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Notice, here in verse 12, loving others gives proof of his presence. First part of verse 12, he says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. Why does John throw in this weird phrase about no one ever seeing God? This is, this is big, but this is, this is important. Put your thinking hat on just for a second, okay? John in the context of his book, is writing to Christians so that they will have assurance of salvation, so that they will know God is real, that they are in Christ and he is in them. The Christians that John is writing to have been influenced by false teachers that claim to have certain visions and higher knowledge of God, which would have obviously been discouraging and created doubts in the believers that he's writing to. Why haven't we had these visions? Why haven't we had these experiences? So John says, it's a bunch of baloney. That's a load of garbage. No one has ever seen God. But he goes on to say, I'll tell you how you know that God is real and that God is love. If we love one another, God abides in us. I love this truth. If you think about this for a moment, God is not interested in bringing glory to himself right now by coming down here and making a big scene of himself on earth. If you and I were God, we'd be like, just come down here, cause a show. Everyone will see you and believe in you. But that's not the way God operates. God is committed to showing the world his glory by abiding in his people and loving undeserving sinners through them. In other words... God's love is not simply displayed on the cross and the death of his son. His love is also displayed through his people as we love one another. And as we love one another, we give evidence to the watching world that God is among us, that God is in us. Jesus says that they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. They will see the way that you forgive and the way that you demonstrate patience and kindness. And they will say, God is among them. Something is different about those people. Do we love that way? So how do we know that God is real? How do we know that God is love? This is a quote when I find myself loving a person who is not lovable, when I find myself praying for someone who's been persecuting me, if I find myself helping someone who has done his or her best to harm me, if I find myself doing that, I know that God is love and that he is within me because if he were not, I would never do it. One of the ways that you know that you're truly born again is when you do that which is impossible. Love people. Some of you don't know this about me, but I am a miserably awkward human being. I'm a massive introvert. Um, growing up, I, people just made me uncomfortable, okay? But I'm also a people pleaser, so people would ask me to hang out, and I would say yes, because I didn't want to make them mad, but instantly I would regret saying yes, because I didn't want to hang out with people. But if they canceled last minute, inside, I'm like, yes, thank you. I don't have to hang out with them. Maybe you feel like this. I mean... Talking in front of people? No way. People make me totally uncomfortable. But one of the first things that God did in my heart was cause a Casey who hated people to love people. I'm still a massive introvert and probably incredibly awkward, but that's okay. I love people. I love you. I love you. When God first called us to... Work with middle school students four years ago. I was like, no way. No offense, middle school students. Actually, those kids, they're in high school now, so y'all are way better than them. I was like, no way, man. But God has enlarged my heart for you. It's his grace. I'm not tooting my horn. It's totally his grace. God causes people who naturally hate people to love people in demonstration of his glory and his grace. That's how he chooses to work. And in that, he is showing the world that he is real and that he is love. Because only Christians, only people who possess God in them, God abides in them, can love. So not only is loving others, proof of his presence, loving others, the next point there, makes his love perfect, which is an interesting phrase. It says, and his love is perfected in us. As we love others, his love is perfected in us. So it's something lacking with the love of God. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here, that God's love is brought to completion when we love others. Here we see the ultimate goal of God's love for us, the ultimate objective in God sending his son into this world to die for our sins and to do all that he did was to make such people that we should love others as he loved us. God's love was intended to flow through us, not simply stop with us. It was never intended for us to just sing songs and be amazed at the love of God and then leave this room Totally unchanged. That is a waste of time. That is not God's intent. God's intent is not for us to have emotionally moving worship experiences in this room and then leave as jerks. God would rather us sing songs. Maybe your heart's not emotionally stirred. Maybe the whole time you're praying, God, I'm not feeling this. Give me affections for you. Maybe that battle's going on while we're in this room. But you go out changed and actually loving people. Amen. That's what we're called to do. Actually love people. Actually look different out there. Who cares if you don't lift your hands and dance around in this room? You can lift your hands and cry tears in this room and be a jerk out there, and you're wasting your time. You're not a Christian. God intends to actually change our lives, actually change your life. And we are doing middle school camp because we believe that the gospel will actually change middle school students' lives. I get so frustrated when people act like middle school students can't do things. I can't do anything I am just as much in need of the gospel as you are, middle school students. As the most immature 11-year-old in this room, I am just as much in need of the gospel as you. But God's gospel is the power of God to change lives. And he will use you to love others for the glory of his name. God's love is intended to flow through us, not simply to us. There's two seas in Israel, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. One is living, flourishing, and beautiful, and green, full of life. The other one is dead. It's in its name, the Dead Sea. There is nothing living in this sea, absolutely nothing. You would think that the reason the Dead Sea is dead and the Sea of Galilee is full of life is because nothing is flowing into the Dead Sea and something is flowing into the Sea of Galilee. That's not true. They both have water sources flowing into them. The difference in the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee is that the Dead Sea doesn't send anything out. Only the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee has inflow and outflow. The Dead Sea just has inflow and it retains everything. And so everything's dead. This is a picture of us. And I want you to hear this, students who come every Sunday night and every Wednesday night. You are a privileged group of teenagers. I grew up in a youth group where I never heard the gospel. The Bible was simply tacked on to a nice emotional boost of a lesson. It was a poor excuse for a youth ministry. You hear the gospel at least three times a week. Most of you are from great homes and you probably hear it regularly in your home and see it displayed in your home. And you have great leaders who are displaying it to you. I pray this weekend. But if you are only taking in the gospel, if you are only staring at the love of God and being amazed by the love of God without actually loving people, You might be dead. You might be spiritually dead. God does not simply want us to be amazed by his love, but to actually love. So what? Is the love of Jesus compelling me to love my neighbor as myself? That's where we boil down to. In Luke 10, Jesus tells a parable I love this parable. Turn there with me. Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. Hang tight, we're almost done. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Most of you know this parable. But a lawyer is, they're trying to trick Jesus. Corner him with his words. What should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what's written in the law? What does God say? How do you read it? In the law, your answer, in verse 27, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind and, with all, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you've said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the man desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor that's the question we want to ask to get out of actually loving real people. Well, who do you want me to love? Jesus. All this talk of love this weekend. Who do you who do you, who am I supposed to love, really? Jesus tells this parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest, a religious man, was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who would have been, these, these guys would have been total enemies, he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion, He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus asked them this question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And they said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. They ask the question, trying to get out of actually loving real people. Well, who, who am I supposed to love? Who, who's my neighbor? And Jesus flips the question and says, that's not the question you should be asking. The question you should be asking is not, who's my neighbor? The question you should be asking is, are you being a neighbor? The question that you should be asking is not, who should I love? But am I showing love to the real people that God has placed in my life? If you want to know who to show love to, then simply look around you. Students, God is calling us to really love. Leaders in the room, you are not excused. God is calling you to really love, to actually love others that don't deserve it. Why? Because God lavished his love on you when you didn't deserve it. God has been so kind to you when you deserve the opposite of kindness. God has been so patient to you when he would be totally just to give up on you right now. God crushed his own son when he could have crushed you. Jesus gave it all to make you his treasure when he could have stayed in heaven and been perfectly happy and content forever. That is the great love. That is the real love that you and I do not deserve. So will you continue to ignore the most annoying person in your small group? Or will you set aside your differences and talk to them without being rude? Will you continue to fight for the front of the line at the next meal or will you gladly allow others to go in front of you with a patience that only comes from God? Will you only surround yourself with people like you or will you gladly embrace friendship with people who are extremely different than you? Will you pretend you're a tough guy and ignore the feelings of a friend who's been hurt or will you stop the act and show genuine care for your friends? Will you dish it right back to that girl who was making fun of you or will you forgive her and move toward her with a kindness that only comes from God? Will you only be captivated by the love of God or will you be changed by the love of God to actually love others? The entire camp could be summed up in this phrase, God is real love. And God has shown his real love to us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us and God continues to show real love to the world through us as we really love one another. Will we join in? Will we not only be captivated, but will we be changed to live real love in our real lives to real people? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would again captivate our hearts by your love, by your great love for us. You are love and you have revealed your love to us by sending your son to die for us while we were your enemies. And you call us to go love undeserving people God, may we not forget that we are an undeserving people and you have lavished amazing grace on us. So God, give us that grace to love others so that the watching world would see relationships of middle school students and say, they're disciples of Jesus. God is with them. That is totally different than anything this world has to offer. I want in on the love of God. So God, will you use us to show the world your amazing love? I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.